Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's such a great story. AJ talked about it in the open that he came as a non-roster player and wasn't going to start the year with the New York Mets. They were concerned about his defense a little bit. A professor told him that his dream of playing in the big leagues when he wrote a paper uh, his freshman year at the University of Florida and, and being married and a good father wasn't necessarily realistic. Here's a kid that just hit 53 homers, has embraced every minute of it, and the fans have loved it. His history, he's about to cry on the field. The story of Pete Alonzo in this year with the Mets, you couldn't write it any better. Coming up, making the team, winning the home run derby, and now he's crying on the field after breaking the all-time rookie home run record. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, September the 29th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva, and you can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia, and the best way to listen to this podcast is on Apple Podcasts. You could also now get the podcast on Spotify. 
Welcome, everybody. A couple hours after the Mets have wrapped up the 2019 season with a dramatic and kind of a symbolic second-half type of a game win over the Atlanta Braves. The Mets finished with 86 wins, four wins short of my Mets math. So, you know what? Uh, not quite uh, Major League, not quite, uh, what is it, Lou Brown there with ripping the pieces off of the uh, the mannequin there in Major League. But the Mets had a fun second half and not necessarily where they want to be. Uh, but uh, I think there was uh, definitely a lot uh, to be said about this team and, and where things went. And guess what? If they had won 90 games, uh, right now they'd be in the playoffs because the Milwaukee Brewers won 89. So, that magic number was right there on a tee. I wish I was wrong, but it was right there on the tee, and unfortunately the Mets finished a few games short. Where do I start? You heard the clip, Pete Alonzo, and we've had a segment on Pete Alonzo. We had the segment with Rustin Dodd of The Athletic a couple of weeks back, and I called it the season of Pete Alonzo, and it really has been. It's been the spring of Pete Alonzo into the season of Pete Alonzo into the All-Star game when this thing really took off. And uh, and and then, of course, into this record-breaking home run that you heard. Joining me in a little bit to share Clubhouse perspective, he was at the front line, is, as always, our good friend, 9870 ESPN. Rich Katina will join me, and he'll tell us basically what's going on in that Clubhouse. And a special night, which is almost, I think it's exactly a year to the day after David Wright retired, which was another surreal night in city field history in Mets history. And it's almost like uh, the end of one career and the start of another and the cherry on top of another. So it'll be interesting to hear Rich's thoughts on that. But I continue to look at Pete Alonzo and I see this boyish and authentic enthusiasm. The cynicism in me continues to say, can he maintain it? I mean, last night you saw a guy who was really at a loss for words. Uh, It was the first time I think he was stammering a little bit and trying to reach for his feelings because I don't I don't think he really knew what to feel. I think he was so overcome with emotion and this feeling. And I've told you, in this small space, this world that I've been in, sometimes I've interviewed people and sometimes you're in the process of interviewing you know, these people. I remember it was Ernie Harwell that I was interviewing many, many years ago, over a decade ago. And I'm talking to him on the phone. I'm like, I'm talking to a guy that interviewed Ty Cobb. That was around when Babe Ruth was alive. And that just hits you. And I think to a certain degree, Pete Alonzo, it hit him out there on the field. I just broke the rookie record of all time in baseball. I mean, he's a, he was one home run off of Babe Ruth's record for uh, home, most home runs with a new team. And if you think about it, you look at all the names that are on that list who have hit over 50 home runs. you got three guys that are steroid uh, impl- you know, implicated for steroids. There's another two who may have done... I mean, you're talking about a very small group, a club. And you could say all you want about the juiced ball. Nobody else hit this many home runs. It's not like he was 53 and there was a 52 and a 51 and a 50. You know, he hit him out. Which even when you look at McGuire in the year he broke his record, you had Sammy Sosa hitting right behind him and you had guys hitting 50 home runs, Greg Vaughn, things like that. So, you know, all together, this is special. And... I just look at this big, goofy guy that was standing on the top of the dugout steps rooting for Sam Haggerty a couple of weeks ago. The the whole 9-11 cleat, the maturity he showed, the leadership he showed, uh, how special the All-Star game was. And that's really when I knew 
this was something serious. When this wasn't just a guy bursting on the scene and going to be a nice, fun story and and be a nice component player. When he what he showed me that night at the All Star Game was how he can go out and he can hit a you know set a goal and go out there and achieve the goal. I don't want to hear about Vlad Guerrero hitting more home runs and how the, it was rigged, the, the derby was wrong. I don't care about that. I'm talking about within the confines of the rules of the game, he went out and said, I'm going to hit one more home run than this guy, and he did it. He set his mind to it, and that's leadership, and that's something that this team has sorely lacked for a long time. And if you look at leaders that this team has had or the best players on the team, Alonso's very unique. Because his attitude is very different, not just because of the the innocence and the this. He's truly the innocent climb. I talked about the innocent climb last show. He truly is the innocent climb. You go back to Seaver. Seaver was a, a big time player, uh, certainly the heart and soul of the Mets. But Seaver was about Seaver. I don't know if he was infectious and he was a pitcher. He was on the mound once every five days. It's a lot diff- a lot different. But remember, Seaver was about Seaver. And then in the 80s, Doc and Daryl were not necessarily leaders. I think the hope was that Daryl would become one. He never was. He had so many, they both had so many of their own issues. They were talented players. They were dynamic players, but they weren't leaders. And Carter and Hernandez came over. So the Frank Cash had imported the leadership. And then if you go to the late 90s Mets, Alfonso, Piazza, Ventura, those were leaders by example. Those were guys that went out, grinded it out. And, and just got the job done. But they almost were in their own little world, so to speak. I mean, that was something that was always... And I've said this to Piazza. You know, he was more like... He went out, he did his job. He wasn't this... That's why it was so surprising when there was the stories of these spirited speeches he would make for his soccer team. I'm like, that's not the Mike Piazza that I remember the media describing back in the late 90s. And then you bring on... The Wright and Reyes era. And Wright was similar to Piazza, a leader by example, where he went out there, he kept himself out of trouble, he worked hard, he showed up every day. But he wasn't infectious to his teammates. And guys like Delgado and Beltron and Wagner and, and some of the big free agents that came in during that time, they were they came here because they were paid to come here. And I'm sure they enjoyed playing here. But Pete Alonso really enjoys being a Met. He he loves it here. He loves the fact that he's representing this team. Matt Harvey, when Matt Harvey was uh, the face of the Mets, let's say for a year or two, he was more interested in Page Six. He was he, he, as soon as he got success, he was talking about free agency and the Yankees, and he. It's almost like he was using, and not like he was, he was using his New York experience with the Mets as a way to go on to bigger and better things. And so far, you don't get that impression from Pete Alonso. You get, you know, I love being here. I love these fans. I love this experience. And everything is special because I think deep down he knows it could go away. And he was told so many times that he wasn't going to achieve any of this, that he has to savor it because he knows how fast and fleeting this stuff is. So you hope that he continues to put in the work. And he's going to have tons of challenges coming into 2020. It's from day one. You know, this season, 
where he hit 53 home runs and he has this OPS of what, 148, 149, whatever, 150. Just from an offensive standpoint, I mean, that's like Wright's 2007, which was his near MVP year. And he probably would have won the MVP that year if not for uh, the collapse. I mean, he's going to have a hard time matching these numbers. And he may have a great season next year, but he may have only 38 home runs or 40 home runs. Maybe instead of driving in 120 runs, he drives in 100. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, he hits 260. Instead of 260, it's 250. Uh, but to me, that doesn't mean he's not living up to expectations, but there'll be talk that he that he isn't. And if you look at the numbers, there was a bit of a drop-off at times in the second half. And he went through a couple of valleys, one in Ju- uh, July. Um, and then he had some period here as he was going towards the record where maybe he was getting a little long with his swing, maybe chasing a little more. But so far, what you've seen from Pete is... The guy really works at his craft, and there's no doubt in my mind, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know one thing, that he's going to work at it. And if you work, and you put the time, and you focus, and you generally, genuinely, not generally, genuinely go after this thing, good stuff's going to happen. And it's not a cliche, it's not goofy to say that, he's proof of that. And this idea, you know, and I hate to bring this up because it's like a non, it's totally off the realm and it, it doesn't even deserve to be mentioned, but I have to. This sour grapes I see on social media from mainly Yankees fans about, well, you know, Pete's, uh, you know, worried about a record while his team is out of the race. I'll tell you what, without even asking Pete Alonso, you want to trade 53 homers and only hit 40 home runs and your team is winning the division and in the postseason now? I guarantee you Pete Alonso makes that trade. I guarantee you that. And you want to know something? If your attitude is your team is out of it and there's only one reason to watch and that's to make the playoffs and win a championship, listen, that's what this is all about is winning. But if any baseball season that you watch is a failure because your team doesn't win a championship, whether it's the NBA, NHL, MLB, football, whatever, I feel bad for you because if that's how your zero-sum life is, then you're going to be mighty disappointed the rest of your life. And you really are not in the spirit of what this is about, which is entertainment. Because there are subplots in championship seasons, close misses, bad seasons that stay with you. Why you're a fan. Why when you win, it's so special. Because you know what? If and when the Mets win with Pete Alonso, the things that lead up to that, things like what you saw happen last night, that's part of what makes it so special. The disappointments, the buildup, which lead to the ultimate goal, is why you get so excited when they win. Because if it was easy, and it happened all the time, it takes a little bit of it away. And I don't care what you say. And that's not Mets fan, loser mentality. Because even if you're the Yankees, 27 World Series, in the history of baseball, the amount of years that baseball's been around, you're considered an abject failure because you don't win 75 to 80% of the time. And that's the truth. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Mickey Calloway. I know we talked about him earlier. Is Mickey Calloway returning? We'll see what's going on with the latest with Mickey Calloway right after this. Uh, very emotional. You know, you're, you're not where you want to be. You know, this is going to stink going home and having to watch all this. I remember doing it last year. Um, I've never done it as a, as a manager, having to sit there and watch the playoffs. It's not fun. Um, you know, you're, you're pretty pissed off every game you watch. But, 
Um, so it's an emotional day. I love the way we won the game. Um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, those guys get to celebrate a little bit like that and uh, go into the off season like that. But uh, the next month is going to suck. Gary? Mickey, for a team, like you said, had a lot of ups and downs. Does it feel appropriate to have won this way? You go 11 innings. I think you're the next to last game to finish on the schedule this season and to win it. Does this feel like an appropriate way for the 2019 Mets? Yeah, it was very, that game was very similar to our season. <laughs> I think you could line it up pretty good. Um, so it was, uh, you know, that's, that was uh, appropriate. All right, we're back listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I know there are, there are reports out there regarding Mickey Calloway, Andy Martino of SNY, uh, basically said that those around the organization feel that Mickey's going to be replaced. You saw Joe Madden's uh, out of a job, Clint Hurdle. We know that Joe Girardi's available, Buck Showalter, Mike Sosha. There's, there's quite a few big names that, if you're interested, are available. There's talk of the Mets going after some new young minds like Joe Espada, bench coach for the Astros, uh, Luis Rojas, who's a, a special assignment coach with the Mets uh, that's been with the team this year. Uh, I, I'm going to continue to tell you what my gut is telling me, and this is not based on information, and we'll see what Rich Catino has to say. Because he's in the clubhouse, he speaks to Mickey, I know he speaks to Brody. Let's see if he gleaned anything from his time in the clubhouse over the last couple of days, this final weekend of 2019. My gut tells me that Mickey's coming back. Now, uh, the reason for this is a combination of a couple of things. First, how he's been talking about next year. He hasn't hid from the media. He's been talking about next year. He's been talking about what guys need to do. He he'd even went out as far as to say, J.D. Davis is my starting left fielder. Now, maybe he's just saying that because, look, he's still employed and he has a right to say that. And he's looking at next season in the context of now, which things could change. We know that. Then he talks about his meeting with Fred Wilpon and the coaches, and they talked about the pitching staff and how they could improve. And um, I just, I just keep continue to look at this, and I'm like, yeah, you're going to try to get as much information out of an employee till the day that you let them go as possible. And Mickey knows pitching. I mean, he was successful in that realm before he became a manager. I just keep saying to myself, you've built something good here. The players look really happy to be here. They've built this resiliency. The things that he needs to improve upon, the bullpen, some of that comes with personnel. A lot of that comes with personnel. And then the media interaction, you can improve upon that. Now, unless his relationship with his bosses, the owners and Brody, is so bad, you can't overcome that. Your bosses you have to get along with or else they're going to fire you. But it seems like the clubhouse is clean. There's a lot of good guys in that clubhouse, so it doesn't take a lot to to manage them. But... You still, you could, you could, there's always a couple of bad apples in every team, no matter how good their culture is. And I think Mickey has helped create that culture. And I think the Mets have got some momentum. And I think it would really behoove them to continue along this path and not continue to short circuit it. Look, if you're going to go after a big name and you're sure that you could get him, I think Girardi, because he's New York tested, would be a great hire. Totally different kind of person, more intense. It's going to be a different experience, and there's going to be some growing pains there. So all this momentum you've built so far in 2019, you're pretty much back to square one, and you're rebuilding in a lot of ways in 2020. And I don't think the Mets window is as short as some of the members of the media are saying, but the last thing you want to do is sit you know, under 500 at the All-Star break again next year. 
because you're trying to learn the manager. Everyone, you know, trying to managers trying to learn personnel, and now you got to make this incredible run because that's what 2015 was about. That's what 2016 was about. That's what this season's about. It's very hard to continue to play catch up. I mean, the Mets have the most wins in the second half without making the playoffs since the 1980 Orioles. That tells you how great the second half is. Tells you how bad the first half uh, was. So, to me, if you're not going for a big name manager and a manager who can make a difference, which even then I question, uh, there's going to be growing pains with that. Why make a change? Because I'll tell you this, and I said this on social media uh, over the weekend. If you're wrong, and you're doing this again two years from now, it does more damage than keeping a manager who, look, you could always fire Mickey. He's got a contract next year. If you see things going bad throughout the season, you know, you got to start to say to yourself, okay, let's jumpstart this team. Uh, and maybe you can do that. But I think part of what hung over this team a little bit might be Mickey's job status. Support him, say, he's my manager. He's got a contract, he's my manager. Uh, he knows he has to win. He knows that if it's June 1st and the Mets are on the 500 and they believe they're underachieving, he's going to get fired next year. It's not going to be like this year where they give him a pass. It's not. That Those days are over. You know, Brody now is on the clock. Like, I, everybody gave Brody that year to evaluate him. And I wasn't going to pound away at him. But now, you know, he's got something good here. Now it's up to him to take the next step. And part of that, I think, is making the right call on the manager. And if he gets rid of Callaway, that means he's going to own the next manager. At least now, to a certain degree, even going into next year, he can say, you know, I'm going to continue this thing. And if things go bad, he could pull the plug on Callaway. And it's still kind of, even though it was his choice to keep him, he still kind of could, you know, get a little bit of a mulligan on that. So my gut says he's coming back. I think a lot of people are going to be upset about that. I don't think it's as bad as you guys think. Because again, like I said a few days ago when we did the instant reaction to, you know, the elimination of, of the Mets. I think the things that he's not good at are fixable and he can fix them and he comes across self-aware enough to do it and he comes across as the kind of worker that will do it. I was very impressed with how he handled the media the last couple of weeks and I was very impressed multiple times how well he did with Francesa. And if you can do that when the pressure's on, and I know that's a big if, there's no reason why you can't manage in this town. He's already got experience for two years. Players know him. He knows these players. He knows this organization. You know, why would you give that up? So that's my two cents on Mickey Calloway. Over the next, you know, 46 to 72 hours, I guess we'll find out. 48 to 72 hours, we'll find out, uh, you know, what the hell's going on here. And and I'm sure we'll be here to react to it on the Talking Mets podcast. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we return, Noah Syndergaard, Zach Wheeler. There was a little bit of news coming out in Mets pregame by Andy Martino. I'll talk about that next. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. 100 million for Wheeler? I mean, isn't that crazy to think? It's a little rich for me, but I do feel like he could possibly get up to about $90 million on the open market. The starting pitching market, unlike the relief market, is pretty rich. You've got a bunch of guys. We talked about Garrett Cole. You've got Hun Jin Ru. You've got Steven Strasburg, who is likely to opt out of his contract. He's looking at four for 100 left on his contract. I think he can beat that. Those guys are, I guess, those the top two guys are definitely better than Wheeler. Rue, it's arguable. We see guys like Dallas Keuchel who don't necessarily have the stuff and do it a different way. They don't get appreciated quite as much on the free agent market as a guy like Zach Wheeler, 
who we know just has absolutely dominating stuff and can do that. So for me, I've talked a lot about Nathan Eovaldi. He got $68 million, four-year deal, similar injury history, but he only pitched 111 innings before he became a free agent. Zach Wheeler's crossed that 180 threshold two years in a row now. So for me, Eovaldi is the floor, and you're looking at somewhere between 68 and 90 for Zach Wheeler. If I'm the Mets and it's in that range, I'm going to think hard about it. We're back, and there was a belief, if you listen to any Martino of SNY during the pregame show uh, earlier today, that the Mets are now more committed to Noah Syndergaard more than ever. I mean, talked about the trade rumors taking a toll, and, and how if you you kind of at this point need to commit to him at least for next year. And I agree, you know, you don't want Noah, at least going into spring training, he has to feel like the organization is in his corner. I think maybe you've learned a little bit about him this year where... If he's not comfortable and a lot of stuff is swirling around and uncertainty, I don't know if he could be the best version of Noah Syndergaard. And he was better today. And he's still a guy that misses bats. Uh, he's been, and I and I tweeted about this, he's been at times a below-league average pitcher this year. His peripherals are still really strong. And look, there are guys who are below-league average, like a Jason Vargas type, and those guys are going to be below-league average. And very, very rarely do they elevate themselves into elite starts or elite stretches. Syndergaard's an anomaly in the sense where, yeah, he may be in that same below-league average ERA plus like a Vargas, but that's a guy who could rip off six, seven weeks of DeGrom, and and that's the difference. And that's why you got to be careful if you trade him. It has to really fit in the context of building the team that could win now and probably get pieces that can help you win in 2020, but also are going to be here for a while. And that's not going to be easy, especially coming off a year where other teams are going to say, I like him. But he showed some warts, and I'm going to ding you for that in the value in a trade, especially now where everything is analyzed from 90 ways to Sunday. Now, the Wheeler situation seems where the Mets will qualify him, but generally because of his, and baseball is so much a front-running sport in the sense where the dialogue and the narrative that is the last thing people hear, whether it be a postseason series or a hot September, all of a sudden changes the narrative. If you had talked to anybody, maybe after that brave start in August where you got hit hard on a Saturday night, or maybe after one of the Yankee games or the Washington game where he didn't pitch well, many people would say, ah, you know, Syndergaard, I can't take him seriously in a big spot. You know, he'll get a four-year, three, four-year deal, maybe $60 million. Now all of a sudden he pitches well down the stretch, Oh, he's a $100 million pitcher. And that's going to be a tough decision. Five years, $100 million. I did the comps for you guys on the last uh, broadcast. Guy's going to be somewhere between 17 and $20 million. The lowest AAV I could see is 15 I think if it gets that low, it's going to be many, many years. He'll get years instead of AAV at that point. Guy's going to get four years probably between 65 to 68 to $80 million. Uh, and in the number, anything over four or five of the Mets, I'd pause about because now you're getting into a, a situation where a guy with still a history of arm trouble and mechanics that could lend itself to that repeating again. And I hear about smooth delivery and everything, and he's improved it. But remember, he still has an arm that drags a little bit. And, and that strain is what initially put him uh, in Tommy John surgery three, four years ago. So, um, I mean, ultimately, I'd love to do three years with Wheeler. I'd love to do only three years with any pitcher, including DeGrom. 
That's just not going to happen. You can't sign anybody with a three-year deal. Personally, I think there's a high percentage chance that knowing they have Lugo, and I know Lugo still is an unknown quantity in the rotation because now you're switching him back, and it's been a couple of years since he's been a consistent starter. But I think they look at Lugo, they look at the kind of pitcher he is, the kind of student of the game he is, and I don't see why he can't come into the rotation. And I'll tell you what, outside of DeGrom, I think he could be just as good as any of the other guys, if not better. And that includes Syndergaard. And that's why, if he's healthy, and I don't know the particulars of the UCL, and I don't know what starting versus relieving does to his arm. You've heard some people say, there's been debate, pitchers say, more strain, the hot and cold in the bullpen versus starting. Because you see that he needs a lot of time to rest, to be effective, I think on a schedule, a starter schedule, that can be mapped out in spring training is the best thing for a guy like Seth Lugo from everything that we've seen out of this team this year about what he needs and what from and from Lugo what he needs. So that's the way I would go. And if Lugo's a, a, a component, I know Mats is shaky. Maybe Mats is the guy that you got to worry about more than Lugo because he still has his hot and cold. He's better at home than the road. I'd love to have Wheeler back if it's a four-year deal at about $65 million, Nady Valdi type money. I don't see why uh, they can't go that route. But I know, listen, anybody in the media that tells you they know the budget, they don't. They don't know the Mets budget. But I do know, and Spotrack is a, it's S-P-O-T-R-A-C. I don't know how accurate uh, their calculations are. Nobody's perfect because nobody has private data. They're forensically putting this together. But um, the Mets are about $12 million away from the luxury tax. And you say, well, how can that be? Well, we've got to remember the luxury tax doesn't take into effect insurance payments. It's average annual value of players on the roster. And Wright and Cespedes, even into next year, are still on the roster with their contracts. And that's about 27 to 28% of the team's payroll are in two guys that didn't take an at-bat. One guy who's never going to take an at-bat again in Wright. And Cespedes remains to be seen. So that's the real issue. you got some dead money there. And um, the Mets, you know, may expend payroll. They may expand out of their comfort zone if they could win. The Wilpons have done that in the past. They still have debt services on City Field. We know that. But they are not going to get hit with a 20% luxury tax uh, on pay. It's just not going to happen. You just can't see that happening. So it'll be very interesting how the payroll comes into play. It's going to be a topic of conversation. And when Brody addresses the media, if he addresses the media with like a State of the Union, and I'm sure he will uh, very shortly, whether it be on a conference call or a City Field press conference, uh, when they announce whether Callaway's coming back or not, if they do that, it's going to come up and we'll see how he answers it. If he dodges the question, uh, I'm sure he's not going to be totally transparent. It's not uh, the media's business to know exactly the number, but they are entitled to and everyone's entitled to know what's the plan. Do you have money to spend or... Uh, are you tight where you need to make some things happen before you can get things going? So, you know, that's where you're at with uh, the rest of the news that came out before the game today. Now it's really just a waiting to, uh, game to see what the next domino to fall. Is Callaway back? Is Callaway fired? If Callaway's fired, then we go into the next phase of this thing where basically it's a managerial search. And that's going to take up, I would think, the whole month of October into early November. And I think it'll be an extensive search, and it may be a little bit more extensive and deliberate than what you saw with Sandy Alderson a couple of years ago. Because I know Brody Van Wagen is not going to want to be wrong, 
And if you do fire a manager after two years, you want to be right. And you don't want to be doing this again in two years or worse. So anyway, all right, let's take a quick break. When we return, Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN, will be joining me. He was in the clubhouse over the weekend. He got a chance to see Pete Alonso after his historic home run. He was there today after the dramatic win over the Braves and talking to Don Smith and getting a general feel of how this club what it feels about itself after a season that was left wanting but had a lot more positives than I think we expected, especially as recently as August 1st. So let's hear from Rich right after this. We're back and joining me, uh, let's wrap up the season, a friend of the show. What better way to wrap up 2019 Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN, at Catino9 on Twitter. Rich, I know the game meant nothing, but an exciting way to end 2019. An exciting weekend with Pete Alonso setting the uh, rookie home run record. Uh, Not the result that anybody wanted when it comes to wins and losses and playoffs, but uh, a fun way to end it and, and pretty appropriate because I think the last couple of nights was a synopsis of the Mets season. It really was, and a synopsis of the relationship between Pete Alonso and Dominic Smith, who really bonded from the moment spring training started this year. And I know Pete talked to him a whole bunch during his rehab, uh, trying to help him to stay positive. And then he comes in today and as a replacement to Pete, really so Pete can get one last ovation from the City Field crowd. And how the game, this game of baseball is a strange game, how it sometimes comes full circle, but the Mets blow the lead and then they are down in the game and Smith comes up as the potential winning run at the plate and he delivers a home run and um, the whole team is just so happy for Dominic Smith because he embodies what I think Mickey Calloway and Brody Van Wagenen want in people on their roster, people that are good players, that have talent, that work hard, and they care about each other. And there's no better example of that than the relationship between Pete Alonzo and Dominic Smith. And you just put Pete Alonzo, you just, that was a synopsis of Pete Alonzo. And this was the season of Pete Alonzo. It started with the spring of Pete Alonzo in spring training. And then he started hitting all those home runs after the season started. The all-star game, you know, that's when it really started to become serious. And now the rookie home run record. And you see this boyish enthusiasm and just very authentic love for the game. And he loves being a mess. He <laughs> loves playing in New York. And, and Rich, to me, there are guys that come here because they, they want to play here, but they get paid the most money. And then there are guys like Matt Harvey that wanted to use the Mets to create something bigger for himself. And when it just comes to Pete Alonso, and, and I know I'm being a cynic like everybody else, like, Where's the catch? I don't know if there's a catch. I mean, you were there last night. I saw you in the scrum post game. I mean, he general, genuinely really was excited, almost like a kid uh, in, in Sandlot, Little League, about breaking this uh, record. And, and it's, it was great to see. If there's a word I'd use to describe Pete Alonso, it would be genuine. He's genuine in everything he does, whether it's on the baseball field or off the baseball field. I'll give you one quick example. I think I mentioned to him in passing a few months ago, and you know it well, Mike, because you and I are close, that my dad has dementia, and it's bordering on Alzheimer's, and he's in a nursing facility, and 
you know, I try to spend as much time as I can with him, but also understand that I need to remember the great moments of my dad. And before the game today, Pete Alonzo comes up to me and he says, Rich, I want to apologize. I know you told me about your, your dad a couple months ago. How's he doing? I wanted to ask you. Now, that's an example of what Pete Alonzo is. Right. He cares about everybody he comes into contact with, and even people he doesn't know. He never met my father, doesn't know my father, but he knows me. And he, and he can see in my eyes, talking about my father, how much I love my father, and he wanted to see how he was doing. And my point is not to make this about me, Mike. You know me well enough that I don't do that. My point is to make this about Pete. And if he could do that for a schlump 59-year-old reporter that works for ESPN, then I can only imagine how special he is to his teammates. And I'll tell you what, Rich, the, the interesting part going forward will be, one, from a performance standpoint, this offensive season, you know, it's going to be hard to match this throughout his career. I mean, he could have a very good season next year or the year after and it not be as good as this. Obviously, if, you know, knowing Pete, he's about the team winning. Uh, but he's got a good, he's going to have a ton of expectations on him. I mean, an OPS plus almost of 150. This is like what David Wright put up, offensively at least, in 2007 when he could have won the MVP, if not for the collapse. So that will be interesting to see how this plays going forward because from day one of spring training, he's not coming out of nowhere. Uh, he's not necessarily a feel-good story anymore. He's Pete Alonso who's expected to lead this team and be the, the offensive hub uh, of what, what, what many will hope to be uh, a division contender and a playoff contender. I don't think there's any question. I think, you know, baseball is a series of adjustments and it pitchers are going to adjust to him. They did a little of it this year, Mike, in that they tried to command the low outside part of the strike zone with breaking pitches. Excuse me, and they went up and in with him on fastballs. He adjusted back to it by having better pitch selection at the plate, particularly in the last six, seven weeks of the season. But this sport is about adjustments going back and forth. It's like that little cat and mouse game that pitchers have with hitters. But he's a real student of the game. He likes looking at film, but he also likes it taking his batting practices. And I watch every one of them where it's not just about him seeing how far he can hit it. It's about situational hitting. I can hear it with Chili Davis saying to him, okay, Pete, runner on second, two outs, 3-2 pitch. Where are you going with this? And he, he does situational things in his batting practice that prepare him for those situations in games. And that leads me to believe that he will be very prepared for any adjustments. Now, whether he can command a 50-home run season again, I don't know, but – I'll tell you right now, I'm pretty sure he can command another 100 RBI season. I don't know if that will happen next year. 120 RBIs is a heck of a lot of RBIs. I mean, you know, the interesting thing, I was looking at the Met history books, and in the 1999 Mets had two players with 120-plus RBIs, which is mind-boggling to me that both Robin Ventura and Mike Piazza did it. That probably meant Edgardo Alfonso and John Oliver were on base a lot for them, but I think it's it, it commands the type of respect. I have as much respect as 120-plus RBIs as I do 53 home runs. I think they go hand-in-hand. Hand. And he got a lot of big hits for the Mets that weren't home runs this year. And that, yeah. that, 
that's what that everybody is. Absolutely. Rich Catino, 9870 SPN. Um, pardon you. I pardon you guys. I have a terrible cold, so I, know. I apologize We appreciate for that. you, you know, coming in here post-game, uh, virtually post-game, and, and spending a couple of minutes with us. Uh, you know, the one thing, too, and Keith Hernandez has brought this up on the air for Pete, is that there's going to be a lot of demands of his time. And to continue to improve, which he's talked about as a player, and to continue to lead this team, time is and time management is going to be of the utmost importance. He's going to have to start saying no to things, not things that are related to the field or to uh, improving, but maybe some media requests. And uh, that's going to be a challenge because he seems like a guy, and you just shared a personal story with us, that wants to connect with people, wants to make people happy, wants to soak up every bit of this experience because even though he's a young guy and, and I'm sure and, and God willingly he'll play 15 years in the big leagues health healthy and put up big numbers but as we learn with David Wright things you know things don't always go that way and um, no they, they don't they don't you know, and, it, but it just, I, it'll be interesting how he handles that I think that in a guy like Michael Conforto he has another player in that locker room that will help share that time with him. I saw it this year where there were days where Pete Alonso wasn't really a focal point of the game and he was talking to the media and Conforto gave him a break. J.D. Davis gave him a break. Um, Todd Frazier gave him a break. Now, I don't know how many of those guys are going to be there next year, but the way the men locker room was set up that, you know, Pete Alonso, David Wright talked every single day, win, lose, or draw. I don't know in this setup with the current cast of characters anyway, that that's a necessity. Um, now, there are other things that drain on a player's time, not just time with the media, um, but I do think that there are enough players in that locker room that will share that responsibility far more than were there when David Wright was there, and I think that that will help Pete get through what you just described. And if you remember, that was a big sticking point with the 07, 06, 07, 08 Mets, where some of the guys felt that they were taking an unnecessary larger burden. So it does, you're right, it does make things uh, a lot better. I- ironic too, Rich, that it's almost, it's actually a year to the day where we were saying goodbye to David Wright, and now Pete Alonso's breaking the rookie home run record and really putting a little cherry on top of a new era in Mets baseball. You couldn't have scripted it better. Uh, it's amazing. When I saw that, I was like, no way. I was thinking about that as the week went on, like it was kind of close. But the same Saturday night, I mean, it's just, it's crazy when you think about it. It really is. And I, I thought a lot about that. And I do think that, you know, David Wright stands alone in a player that I dealt with that from day one knew how to deal with everything the New York media threw at him and did it exceedingly well. I think Pete Alonso has evolved into that. It wasn't that way in spring training. You could see he was a little tense with it. Not nasty to the media, but tense about worrying what he was going to say. Um, but I definitely think he's evolved into it. all the stuff that he did around the All-Star game, all the um, stuff that he donated, um, the whole 9-11 night. You know, it all kind of brought to the forefront not only what kind of person Pete Alonso is, but what kind of people his his family is. And I had a chance yeah. to meet them a couple of times. And when you meet his mom and dad, you realize why Pete's the way he is. 
Yeah, absolutely. Rich Catino, 9870 ESPN. I know he's not feeling well, but a couple of quick things, Rich, before we uh, wrap up here and let you go. Uh, Mickey mm-hmm. Calloway, uh, I, I listened to Mickey in the pregame, and uh, you know, you and I have talked off air, and I know that over the next 48 to 72 hours, we'll, you know, through the Jewish holiday, it looks like there might be some downtime there at the Mets offices that uh, you know, his fate will be determined. Here, here's what I know without any information. I know that the media is reporting, Andy Martino of SNY is reporting, that a lot of those around the Mets feel they're going to make a change. That's not Brody. He's been honest about it. That's not Jeff or Fred, but those around feel there's going to be a change. My gut, though, tells me otherwise, and I'll tell you why. You know, Mickey was talking a lot about next year throughout the last few days. I know some people characterized it as pleading for his job, uh, but I didn't see it that way. Um, I, I thought he was just being factual. This is what I could bring to the table. This is what I expect. And um, when I heard that he had met with Fred Wilpon and some of the pitching coaches to talk about next year's team, I know that some thought that was a bad thing because, you know, why are they meeting with Fred and not Brody or Jeff? And I think we all know the dynamic with the Mets is Fred likes to talk to the, the manager. You know, that's, it's his team. That doesn't mean it has to be a formal meeting. It could just be, you know, them having a bull session. Uh, I know Girardi's out there and I know Madden's out there and Clint Hurdle and there'll be other big names potentially to throw out there. If the Mets aren't sold that they can close the deal with a big name. And I think the only guy that really, in my opinion, makes a difference here in New York is Girardi, who's a different style, but it just seems like he's such a good fit for the Cubs and what's going on over there. Uh, I think you keep him and you keep him for another year. Um, and you just you show us a support. I think there was some tepid support of Mickey. I think showing him support might go a long way, and he seems like a guy that has enough self-awareness to know where he needs to improve. You've had some time with him. You know him you know, one-on-one. I don't. I'm an outsider. Uh, what do you think about how I've kind of broken that down a little bit? Well, and I think that Mickey talks to Jeff, Fred, and Brody on a regular basis, so I'm not surprised that he talked to Fred. And, you know, in fairness, those media sessions are almost like the media interrogating him to show them why he should be the manager still. It's, I, I call it the code red investigation and, you know, a few good men. And my point is, to me, Mickey's whole report card is a pretty simple one to look at, and I give him a B for the year because there are some X's and O's in game that I wish he would have done differently. Um, even going back to last year with the whole, you know, lineup card thing, you know, and I know that's well over a year ago, but it's part of the report card. But now two straight years after the All-Star break, the Mets have performed at a much higher level than they did in the first half. It's not just this year. They did this last year, too. Now, maybe it wasn't as dramatic last year because they had no chance of getting in a playoff race, but their record in the second half last year, was tied with the Rays for the best record in the NL East last year. And this year, we know what they did. They finished 10 games over 500, and they were not anywhere near 500 at the All-Star break. So I think you have to factor that into the equation. Um, And I think he's going to be back. Um, I can't say that for sure. I can't say that because anyone has told me that. I had a long conversation with Brody Van Wagen, who had a little session with the media, but I talked to him one-on-one. And I told him, I put, you know, I, I said, you know, Brody, I'm going to give you my two cents here. Maybe that's all it's worth. And if I'm going somewhere I shouldn't go, tell me not. But I'm going to tell you the things I like about Mickey. 
and I put it clearly to Brody how I felt. He didn't really respond to it, but I basically said, I'll tell you how I feel this about Mickey Calloway. If I had a son who was going to be a baseball player, I'd want Mickey to manage him for two reasons. One, I think he'd probably become a better player, but more importantly, I think he's going to become a better person and a better teammate. And when I said that, Brody's eyes kind of widened a little bit. Now, whether they widened because he thought I was crazy, whether they widened because he agreed with me, whether they widened because he never heard anyone analyze Mickey that way before, I don't know. But I do think that today's baseball manager has to do two things well. And the rest of it could be average. He has to communicate well with everybody he deals with, whether it's the organization, whether it's players, even the media. And two, he's got to handle the bullpen well. Now, the second part of that, I think Mickey needs a little work on, handling a bullpen well. The first part of it, I'm telling you this from the bottom of my heart, Mike, he's, he's as good at the first part communication as I think any manager in baseball is. So I don't think you can just take that and say, I need a new manager. Well, if you're going to have a new manager, you've got to make sure of two things. One, that he handles the bullpen better than Mickey and has shown he can do that. And two, that he's as good a communicator as Mickey at the very least, if not better. And I think you can find people who handle the bullpen better. I think Girardi would. I think Joe Madden would. I think Clint Hurdle would. But I've got to be honest with you, I'm not satisfied with how Clint Hurdle kind of lost the clubhouse in Pittsburgh as they were out of the race. I'm not really too enamored with what Madden did in Chicago, and I know they had a lot of injuries, and I know, but the bullpen was a mess for them down, down towards the end of the season, really from Labor Day on. So I'm not convinced that any of those names are a person that I would replace Mickey Calloway with. The other part of it is I want these coaches back, too. I think Phil Regan's done a great job with the pitching staff, and I think Chili Davis has done a great job with the hitters. You might want to change some of the other coaches around, but I think you need some solvency in that organization. Now, let's look at the history for a, for a moment. A few years ago, the Mets made the playoffs in 16. The following year, they didn't. So they made Terry Collins pay with his job. The following year, they didn't make it again. And I know Sandy got sick, but for all intents and purposes, they made Sandy pay. It's time now to have a little solvency. You have a manager who's only going into his third year and a general manager only going into his second year. I don't think you can start making this a revolving door. I think you need some consistency. And if I were making the decisions and I was Brody Van Wagenen, I'd bring Mickey Callaway back. I wouldn't extend the contract because he's got a year, another year worth of contract. And that's the other thing people are forgetting. If the Mets let Mickey go, they're going to have to pay two managers. They're going to sure. pay Mickey's salary and the new manager. And I know that's not something the Mets like to do. So, no. uh, to me, a lot of things point to Mickey returning, and I've got to be honest with you, I would be pretty shocked if he doesn't return. I'll, I'll even go that far to say that, that I would be shocked if Mickey Calloway is not the Met manager in 2020. Interesting stuff. Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN. I thought he did better with the media and the scrums towards the end of the year, Rich. Uh, he was more comfortable in himself, especially after they were out of it. Maybe he learned something from that. I thought he did a great job with Mike Francesa. I thought when I listened to him with Mike, and I'm a big critic of Mike, uh, Mike even, who's, I mean, he's been going after Pat Shermer here. <laughs> he quit his show. 
And Mickey could have been the next guy. He took it. He took it. And he earned Mike's respect. And uh, I, look, that shouldn't be the reason to hire or fire a manager. But I have to tell you, the bullpen thing, some of that is a product of the bullpen itself. It becomes easy to manage a bullpen when it's a little bit of, of, of guys living up to expectations uh, and, and, and succeeding in the roles. The clubhouse seems like they all like them. I'm not in the clubhouse, but all reports are there's no issues there. Yeah, the media doesn't like him, and he, he admitted to mistakes he made with the situation in Chicago, but I thought he was better. And perhaps a, a vote of confidence in him coming back. There may be some in that room that aren't happy about that, but at some point maybe they back off and say, hey, you know, he's here. We pushed, we pushed, but he's still here. He survived. Uh, maybe that'll be, be different for Mickey. And, and I think if he can relax and be himself like he was over the last couple of weeks when I saw him in those scrums and with Mike Francesa, he'll be fine. Just don't make a BS answers and be transparent, be honest without indicting your players. It's hard, but he's shown he could do it. And I think that's his biggest struggle with the media. Sometimes he just doesn't know what to say. So he, he extemporaneously makes up something that gets him in trouble. Uh, he stopped doing that, I felt, at least the last couple of weeks. Well, and I'll tell you, you know this because I told you this off air, Mike. You know, last year, I felt I didn't have a great relationship with Mickey. I didn't think it was a bad relationship. I just thought it was no relationship. And I looked in the mirror at myself in the offseason and said, you know what? I'm the reporter. I need to make the relationship with Mickey. I need to make it better. So I went up to him in spring training. And I talked to him about it, and I said, Mickey, I want to be clear. This is not your fault last year. We didn't have a great relationship. That's on me. I need to do my job better. And I said, I want to set up a, a, a regular time where we can chat. And every time I asked him to chat, whether it was in a good time or a bad time, he found time to chat with me, whether we were on the road, whether we were at home, whether we were in the hallway, wherever we were. I didn't have a recorder with me. I didn't want to put him in kind of any strife for that. But I wanted to get to know him as a person, too. And you know, Mike, from my life, I've been going through a lot of things that are very challenging, let's just say, in this calendar year. And Mickey has given me advice on some of those things. And I can understand now why players go through a wall for him. Because he breaks things down and makes them simple. And he... He's honest and direct. And I think with the media, you have to learn that you can't always be honest and direct because, first of all, management may not want you to be honest and direct about an issue. But secondly, you have to try to answer their question, and if they have a follow-up question, you have to answer that as well. And I think he got better at that, like you said. I think you hit the nail on the head, Mike. And he got better at that after the All-Star break. But my whole point of this is that – Mickey Callaway, to me, improved our relationship because he was open to communicating in a way we weren't communicating in that fashion a year ago. He made it easy for me to do my job better in terms of my relationship with him because he could have said, Mike, when I went to spring training, he could have said, well, Rich, you know, you have your time in the scrums and that's it. But he didn't say that. He was open to it. And if he's open to that, I can only imagine what he would be open to for a player. And I know because I've talked to players. Seth Lugo, I'll give him as an example. He thinks Mickey's one of the best communicators he's ever been around. And when you look at how successful Seth Lugo has become in the Mets' plans and the Mets' brand, 
whether he's going to be in the rotation next year, whether he's going to be in the bullpen, I kind of started to understand, and I think a lot of media members, when they hear players talk about Mickey and how great he is to deal with one-on-one, I think they gave that suck a lemon face where they don't believe it. I believe it because I've been, I've gone through it with Mickey, and I can understand, and I'm not a player. Like I said earlier in the call, I'm just a 59-year-old schlump that covers baseball. And my point is that Mickey not only communicated me, but he made me feel like my questions were important for him to answer and important for him to respect my job and understand it. And I think I didn't do that last year, and I regretted it. I said maybe I should have taken this jump much earlier in the 2018 season, and I didn't. And one of the things in life is you you never look back at mistakes and start evaluating them. You look at how you respond to mistakes. And I think Mickey responded to the whole Tim Healy thing well, and that it made him better. And he acknowledged it today when he was talking about it. He said, it's something I should have handled better. And he mentioned Tim Healy by name in his pregame presser. So my point on all this is that I think he's the right guy for the, where, where the Mets are now. The Mets won 86 games last year, which is almost a 10-game improvement over last season. Okay, it speaks to some of the things Brody added into the roster, which he doesn't get credit for. I always hear everyone criticizing Brody for the Cano trade, but I don't hear anyone talking about him signing Wilson Ramos, Justin Wilson, J.D. Davis acquiring him. You know, somehow that gets kind of lost in the shed. But you improved your standing in in, in wins by 10 games. Now you're in the mid-80s. Now you want to get to the 90-plus thing in 2020 to get where you want to be. Sometimes that's a harder jump than going from mid-70s to mid-80s. But I do think that if they look at the bullpen on how to make it better, if they bring in a center fielder that could play day in and day out and add some starting rotation depth, which I think they're going to need, um, I think that, you know, I think this team's headed in the right direction. And I think... A big part of that is the culture that Callaway's created. You don't want to end it now. You don't want to put it in the sewer. You want to extend it, and you want to make it even better, the culture. But the culture that's been built there, it's like a bud or, or a, a flower. You want a, a bud, you want the flower to grow. And I think it's grown a lot this year, but I don't think it's grown to full bloom yet. And I think in order to do that, you've got to keep Mickey Callaway. And I just have a sense that the Mets understand that better than people think they do. And listen, if they keep Mickey Callaway, Mike, they'll get criticized all over the place. And one thing I found out about Brody, he doesn't care about that. He is, he's confident that he can make the right decision and he's not going to, you know, go crazy with what the media thinks. And when's the last time the Mets made a managerial change based on what the media wanted them to do? I think you got to go back to the hiring of Jeff Torborg. The media was clamoring for that, clamoring for it. Now, Jeff Tolbert's a really nice man. I enjoy talking to him. I've done production work on his broadcast when he was a broadcaster. He's a great guy. But it didn't work out as manager for a variety of reasons. uh, I'm not going to go into now, but a variety of reasons, okay? My point on the whole thing is that was the media's hand-picked successor to the Mets manager's chair. So to me... There's a reason why people are in the media, and there's a reason why people are not in the media, uh, 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 general managers and work for teams. And I don't have the skill set to work for a team, but I have the skill set to be a reporter. But 
I have to look at something, and I can't just say, well, make a move. And part of the problem, too, Mike, is everyone plays fantasy sports now, so everyone thinks they could be a general manager easily. And you can't do it easily. There's so many things that go into decision-making. There's so many things that go into the process. There's a lot of talk that Mets are going to have to do about Syndergaard in the offseason. They're going to have to talk about Wheeler. These are not just, well, we'll sign this with a fait complete. You have to make decisions based on what your plan is, and you can't have block A not being connected to block B to C to D. And I think fans and the media don't understand this, and that's why they evaluate trades when they happen. Well, well, to me, you don't evaluate an offseason until the offseason's over. And I've said it to you a million times, the Cano trade, on the face of it, not a great trade, but... Swarzak and Bruce going in that trade may have brought Justin Wilson and Wilson Ramos to the Mets. And you have to look at the whole picture. It can't just be what the picture you want to further your argument. Okay? And to me, Brody's done a good job in helping to start to rebuild this roster. Also, his first major league draft was a rousing success. I think these are things that the media hasn't come out with because it doesn't fit the narrative that the Mets just don't know what they're doing. The narrative that they want out there. And do the Mets make mistakes? Yes. Do a lot of teams make mistakes? Yeah. Teams teams win, they make mistakes. The team across the river, three straight trading deadlines now, they've let a pitcher go out of their grasp to a team that they might be playing in the playoffs. They did it with Verlander, they did it with Evaldi, and now they did it with Granke. Now, in fairness with the Granke thing, he had a no-trade clause and he wasn't going to go to the Yankees, so Maybe that's an unfair criticism. But my point on the whole thing is that's what you have to evaluate general managers on, what they do. Sandy Alderson, as the Mets general manager, only two of his years were the Mets in a pennant race. One year he got Ioannis Cespedes, and that was after one of the worst nights in his life where a trade didn't happen. And the next year he got Jay Bruce. And right. both years the Mets went to the playoffs. And to me, that's how you evaluate general managers you don't evaluate them on, you know, well, he doesn't talk to me enough. No, it's not that. General managers are evaluated, and all general managers make mistakes. Even the best ones have made mistakes. And it's something I learned when I covered Frank Cashin, that you never can evaluate an offseason until the offseason is completely done. And my point is the Mets went, a 10-game improvement in the standings just about, and that can't be, be and that can't have nothing to do with Brody Van Wagenen. Not, it's not possible in the sport. It's not possible. But the media will make you believe it has nothing to do with Brody Van Wagenen, or they'll make you believe that a 10-game improvement in the standings is not that big a deal. But to me it is, and now you want to take that next step to go 90-plus wins, because I think when you got that 90-win mark, you're going to be a playoff team, whether it be a division or a wild card. Yeah. And Good. my point is that's where, that's where you want to be. And my point is this year has put the Mets in that direction. Now, whether they can complete the, the task of, of going the road to a playoff team, that remains to be seen. But they're on the highway now. They were below 500 team last year. They're an above 500 team that finished 10 games over 500 in a year where the first half was absolutely abysmal. Okay. To me, that doesn't say – that says a lot about both Brody and Callaway. And I think that exacta 
if I were the Wilpons, that's an exact I would keep in place because it reminds you know what it reminded me of? And I might have told you this last week on the phone, Mike. It reminds you of the 2005 Mets. The 2005 Mets made, had a lot of roster changes going into that season. And they were good for a lot of the season. And then September, early September, mid-September, they fell out of it. But Willie Randolph made sure that they didn't finish that season tanking it. And they were all both 500 teams. And the Mets went out and added some things for the 2016. They added Carlos Delgado. They added Billy Wagner. They added Juana Sanchez, who before a cab accident was pretty important. And my point is they went from an over 500 team in the mid-80s and wins to the team with the best record in baseball, the best record in the National League. Now, we know it didn't work right. out in the playoffs, but that is what it is. My point is that reminds me so much of what we've seen from this Met team this September. And we'll see if my comparison is valid when the Mets go into the offseason, make changes, and see how they do next year. But I see a lot of similarities between – the 2019 Mets and the 2005 Mets. To me, they're like mirror images I'm looking in the mirror at. Rich, you've always been a friend of the show. Great stuff this year. You've been a frequent guest. Appreciate your perspective on here and Twitter at Catino9. Go get some Ricola. Go get some tea. Be better. And I know you and I will be talking because there's going to be news coming out very shortly. And uh, we mm -hmm. definitely want you to be a part of it. So be well and get some rest. Thank you again for grinding through, the, through this, my friend. And, Mike, much like Pete Alonzo, you're a great teammate and always will Thanks be. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rich. All right, we'll, we'll speak that. soon, buddy. Take care. That's Rich Catino at Catino9, 98.7 ESPN. Let's take a quick break, wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, that's great stuff from Rich Catino. Always appreciate him coming on. And like I tell you guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. And I know I gave you a little thank you after the podcast the other day. I wasn't sure if we'd be back. But with the Pete Alonzo home run and, you know, some of the stuff that came out from Martino in the pregame, I thought it would be appropriate to have a, a regular podcast on a Sunday like we normally do and, and not leave the last podcast before the next time we meet as the reaction podcast that we popped up in the middle of the week. So you guys know the deal. Uh, I know the the holiday is upon us for those who celebrate. So uh, I hope everybody enjoys themselves. And uh, I think there'll be a couple of days of meetings with this uh, this this management team. I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll hear something as uh, as early as uh, Monday. Who knows? Maybe by the time you're listening to this podcast, some of this stuff is stale and Mickey's either fired or Mickey's coming back. But I think regardless, there'll be some nuggets to take out of it. And uh, there'll be another reaction to this as soon as we know what the situation is. And uh, I'll continue to come to you throughout the offseason. Once we decide the Mickey Calloway situation, there may be, especially if he's coming back, a little bit of downtime. So be prepared for that. You can continue to go to at Mike Silva Media 
on uh, the Twitter. You can continue to do that. Tell, you know, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me an email. You can interact with me even at times when we take maybe a week or two off, whether it be for the holidays, uh, during the off season, or because we're just going to sit back and watch October baseball. Unfortunately, not Mets baseball, but October baseball, and then kick it back in when the hot stove kicks off, which it'll be here before you know it. This stuff goes really quick. Season flew by, and I've had a ton of fun. And uh, this has been one of the more unique seasons in Mets history. And since we started doing this podcast in 2015, uh, it's been one of the more, well, 2016 actually, it's been probably one of the more interesting and fun and unique seasons. Uh, And it's been a ton of learning and growth for me as well about what you guys are looking for and, and what works and what doesn't. So anyway, we're out of time. I want to thank you guys again. Continue to go to Apple Podcasts for the best way to listen to the Talking Mets podcast. Also on Spotify. So if you're a Spotify fan, I'm there too as well. You can continue to get me on Twitter at Mike Silva Media. And as again, as I always say, thank you for a great 2019 season. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another podcast soon. Sit tight. Be well till then. 